Welcome to The Art of Badassery, where I explore what it takes to live life on your own terms, break free from the status quo, and unleash your inner badass. Whether you're a rebel at heart or simply seeking inspiration to step outside your comfort zone, this podcast is for you. I'm your host, Mahara Wayman, and each week I dive into the stories, insights, and strategies of those who have mastered the art of badassery and are living life to the fullest. They smile when no one is looking. Welcome to another exhilarating episode of the Art of Badassery podcast. I'm your host, Mahara Wayman, and today's show promises to be an extraordinary journey into resilience, transformation, and the incredible power of the human spirit. My guest today is a true embodiment of strength and courage, Hannah Studley. Hailing originally from the UK and a graduate of the prestigious Manchester University, Hannah's life has been a tapestry of remarkable experiences. Her journey is unique from living in the heart of Hollywood to currently calling Jerusalem home. In the 1980s, Hannah faced three harrowing and violent attacks that left her with severe injuries and crippling PTSD, resulting in years of unbearable anxiety and stress. But then something truly miraculous happened. It was as if her brain rewired itself and amidst the turmoil, she found unexpected inner tranquility. So driven by this transformation, she embarked on an awe-inspiring path, dedicating the last three decades to helping others recover from trauma, chronic pain, and physical afflictions. As a trained counselor, Hannah's compassion and insight have touched countless lives guiding them towards healing and resilience. But that's not everything. Her story is a tale of versatility and accomplishment. For two decades, she played a pivotal role in Hollywood, creating mesmerizing special effects in major motion pictures, including the Academy Award-winning film, Babe. She is not just a counselor and special effects wizard, though. She's also a certified life coach, a three principles practitioner, and a World Health Organization psychological first responder. With a diploma in psychology, she's a true mental and emotional well-being expert. But beyond her professional achievements, she's also a sought-after speaker at conferences, universities, and community events. She is a published author with three books that inspire and uplift. So guys, get your favorite drink, fasten your mental seatbelts. We are going to delve into this beautiful and remarkable journey of my guest, Hannah Studley. Welcome to the show. Wow, thank you so much. What a nice introduction. I love, you know what? I love what I do. I really do. And mm -hmm. I think it's one of the things that underlines this idea of being badass is that we really truly love, we love who we are and we love what we do. So let's jump into your story. Um, wow, you've moved around a lot. When did you leave the UK? And did you go from the UK to the States or was there anything else in between? Um, yeah, I left the UK probably 30 years ago, and um, I went to Australia first for six months, which is where we filmed Babe. And uh, so we're out in a, a field for six months in the rain. And then um, I moved to San Francisco and then down to Los Angeles. Yeah, so I was in LA for about 16 years working in the movies. Yeah. Was it what you expected? Yeah. 
yeah I guess so I mean it's not something I dreamed of funnily enough it wasn't I didn't grow up thinking oh I want to work in the movies I didn't even know of such a thing I mean my my career was called fur and feathers on my green card right? who knew you could have a career in fur and feathers you know so it wasn't really on the the list of careers and you know when you're in high school um so I kind of fell into it which is why how most people you know get into these things because they're not the kind of jobs that get advertised so I started out in the theater in London doing props and costumes for like big West End shows and the Royal Shakespeare Company and the BBC and things like that and then I met a woman who was um just starting a movie and that was a rare opportunity you know in London so um we the first Flintstones movie was my first movie um, uh, she and I, she taught me how to do a lot of the techniques and then she went off to LA to do all the filming and just after they all these experienced people left um, Jim Henson who I was working for they we got babe and so she, they had to bring all the experienced people back and I was sent to LA um, to replace 14 people <laughs> and supervise all the creatures on Flintstones for the rest of the three months of filming so I, I'd been on TV sets before, but I'd never been on a movie set before. So it was like I was the expert who was flown in from London. <laughs> I did not know what I was doing. <laughs> so I talk about winging it. Um, and I'm there working with all the crew who had just come off Jurassic Park. I'm with Steven Spielberg and Elizabeth Taylor. This is my first movie. <laughs> talk about thrown in the deep end. And I just had to, I had to, you know, get on with it. And I did it. And I came back to London and got on the next crew. And then we ended up in Australia doing Babe. So, yeah, it was very exciting and, and a lot of fun. And, and I loved it. I want to go back to that phrase, what you just said, which is I just had to get on with it. Because truly, there are people that would have been thrown into a situation like that. And they would have just crawled under the table or said, I'm sorry, there's been a bit of a misunderstanding. Like, I'm here to just get you guys, you know, I, I, whatever. So what yeah. is it? What did you do to dig deep and actually, you know, go through with this? Um, yeah, it's a great question. The The moment when I really had to do that was um, if anybody saw the movie, there's a scene where Elizabeth Taylor is held in the mouth of a dinosaur. Right. And she's you know, like like this being held in the dinosaur, but you can't put Ms. Taylor on her side dangling a dinosaur because they filmed it on its side. So she's standing on a box and the dinosaur's head's on its side, you know, the illusions of Hollywood. But the dinosaur had a big rip in its nose. It's made of silicon, right? And one of my first jobs was, I was told by the the, the AD, um, the dinosaur is um, needs fixing. It's on another soundstage at Universal Studios. Go fix it because we're filming it tomorrow. I'm like, Okay. Now I hadn't even seen this dinosaur before. I made the birds, you know, in the movie. So I go over to stage 27, Universal Studios, and all of the rigging crew from Jurassic Park are standing there. These men who've been in, you know, the film business forever, seasoned professionals are standing there and they're going to watch the expert who's flown in from London. I was 27 years old and I, I went and looked the dinosaur is massive it's bigger than me and um it's got a big rip in its nose and my colleagues who left had left a bot a repair box and I looked in it and there was um some uh glue there was some paint there was some scraps of silicon you know the same kind of texture and I remember thinking what am I gonna do I don't I and then I remembered my father taught me how to repair 
a punctured tire on my bicycle when you I was a kid. going to say that. And, and I'm like, silicon, rubber, glue, what else could it be, right? So I, I there was sandpaper. So I sanded down the area where the rip was. I cut a piece of um, latex that was the similar kind of texture. Um, I put the contact adhesive on. And these guys are just watching, right? And being so hot in a film studio, it dried pretty quickly, slapped on the patch like a Band-Aid, right? Um, painted around the edges, put some talcum powder on to get rid of the the, um, the glue. And, and, and they were like, oh, wow, that's interesting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, great, great. I'm like, yeah, dude, see you tomorrow. <laughs> I, I did not sleep that night. I was terrified. Can you imagine in the heat, the glue going, you know, it's like big things sticking off. And the next morning when I arrived at set, we were filming um, in a, um, a quarry at um, North North LA. And um, I, I forget breakfast. I went straight to the set because they'd moved it overnight. And uh, and I was just, my, my heart was pounding. I was just waiting for everybody to start screaming and shouting at me. And it was, you could not see the join. And I was thank God, thank God, thank God. <laughs> <laughs> you know it really was I was winging it but I thank God to my father for for teaching me practical stuff and um and and nobody ever caught on that I didn't know what I was doing and I just kept learning and I, I learned make friends with everybody because you never know when you might need something from the electrician or the carpenter or you know <laughs> the costume department and and I and I just did it I I kind of um I'm I was never one to back down I I have t two older brothers so I had to fight to be, you know, like to join in and be included and stuff. So I, I never wanted to be left out. So I just kind of did my best and and it's, it kind of worked out. Thank God. <laughs> what a fantastic story. And I can just imagine the, the tummy plummeting when you saw the rip. And, it, you mm. know, we've all had experiences where we're all of a sudden, I think, going am I supposed to be here? Like, is this a time, like, did I step into a time warp? Have I stepped into a Twilight Zone episode? Because I don't know WTF I'm doing, mm -hmm. but somewhere you, you did, you know, your dad, as you said, thanks dad for mm -hmm. teaching me some, some basic stuff mm -hmm. and you pulled it out mm -hmm. when it was all said and done. Did you kind of have like a collapse maybe at the end of the day where you're on your couch going, Oh my God, what did I just experience? Or did you just take it in stride and move on to the next day? Cause there was always something else coming up. Yeah. I didn't have really have any time to, to, to rest because we worked 12, you know, 14 hour days. We'd have to fix things overnight to, that got broken to be ready for, to shoot the next day, working six days a week. Um, yeah. The, the only time I remember on that first movie where I, I took a moment for myself was um, the first famous person to remember my name that that was a special moment um John Goodman was playing Fred Flintstone and I was walking between two of the studios on the back lock at yeah, um, Universal Studios and he was in full Fred Flintstone costume and he was walking by on his own and he went hi Hannah and I was like hi John oh my god oh I <laughs> oh, love god, it I you know, I'd watched Roseanne, you know, when you know, when I was younger, like on TV and there, there he is and he remembered my name. I mean, after that, I met countless famous people, you know, it was a real, it was just a daily thing. It just, they're just, they're people like everybody else, you know, but that was the, the first moment. And I think that was the only time I kind of got, I don't know if that's starstruck, but I just, it was special. I, I remember thinking, how did I get here? <laughs> this is really weird. You know? <laughs> You know what's so cool about that story is it really it really highlights this understanding that first of all we don't always see and believe how the world sees us. And secondly, if you say it, 
or are in are in a way that if you are perceived a certain way, sometimes it doesn't match how you feel about yourself, but that doesn't matter because people see you like you were meant to be on that set. He he spoke mm-hmm. to you just like an equal. And mm-hmm. it's just a great reminder that you know what? Often the outside doesn't match the inside, right? The outside perception can be different of what I'm feeling on the inside. And I think true badassery is when we can meld the two together. I feel like a badass. I'm projecting that and people are projecting it back to me. It's like, um, I remember fairly recently, like in the last couple of years, I said to somebody, oh, I'm an author. And they're like, oh my God, you're an author. Because they were thinking I've, you know, that I'm going to, my book's going to be read by Oprah and everybody's talking about it. And <laughs> I didn't say anything other than, you know, I'm an author, but I could see the wheels turning and their perception of what it means to be an author is quite different to what mine was. Mine was like, yeah, I just finished. I just hit the self-publish on on Amazon and apparently I'm an author now. But it's just Mm -hmm. interesting that so many of us struggle with finding, with understanding who we are. And when the world reflects it back to us, sometimes we don't even believe it. Like people Mm -hmm. say, oh my gosh, Mahar, look at you, you're a podcaster and you're, you're this and you're that. And I'm like, oh, I am? Actually, I'm just trying to figure this shit out. Like I'm just, I'm just whatever. So- Great story. So you spent a long time in Hollywood. Yeah, um, I guess 20 years, you know, 16 of it was in America, but was in England before that. Yeah, it was it was fun. I mean, tr- I traveled a lot. I went to a lot of places I wouldn't have normally gone to, like, you know, three months in Texas or, you know, six months in Australia. It was, you know, it was, um, yeah, it was got paid silly money to do silly things with, with really famous people. <laughs> Sounds, yeah. sounds quite wonderful what's one of the biggest things that you learned about yourself in those 16 years of traveling the world thinking on your feet hanging with the famous people getting paid silly money to do silly things mm-hmm. um I think that resilience thing is is was a big part of it because I mean there are plenty of people who would have you know happily taken my job um I think it goes right back to my training in college I did textiles in college and I was really provided with a kind of encyclopedic knowledge of tools and techniques and methods and you know what works and what doesn't and one of the things we used to say was um, the impossible we can do today the really impossible you have to wait till tomorrow (laughs) and and that was a constant thing because my whole job was um, problem solving you know making prototypes you know um, I made a I made wings for John Travolta, for example. There, there is no like pattern or kit you can go buy of like wings for a six foot four man. You know, like you know, I had to, I had to study books of birds and and like work out and tell the mechanic what to make for me so I could, you know, which feathers are going to work and I could make them look beautiful. But then they had to move. They had to, you know, flex in and out like a bird's wing. So you know, they're all going to go, you know, like that. So I had to work out what to base them on, which kind of netting and and you know, a lot of technical trying, you know, R&D, we call it like research and development. And then I've got to take it with me to the location and then it's got to work, you know, and then, you know, on the day it's got to work. And if it doesn't, which I had one time when it didn't, um, that's a story. And, you know, it's, it's really, everybody's looking at you and you just got to, you know, you've got to be able to do it and, you know, produce what you say you're going to. And so when they come to you and say, can you make this? And you're like, Mm, yeah okay I can do that for you or no I can't that's not possible (laughs) so I learned to 
um, if it wasn't possible, I learned to say no, because later on, I, I learned from experience that it's going to come back on me if, if it doesn't work. Um, in fact, I, I can tell you a quick story where that happened. So um, the wings I made for John Travolta, I, I made about four or five different sets because there's some when he's flying, supposedly, and there's some when he's, you know, like walking or, or you know. And the first time you see him in the movie, it's called Michael. It's a silly movie about him being an angel. And, um, and so the hero shot, they call it a hero shot the first time the main character, you know, appears on, on, the, on the screen. And he's walking downstairs. He just has boxer shorts on and the, the wings are glued to his skin, which I've had to glue every little feather on, which you never see. Um, right? And um, and the, you know, imagine wings that are gonna lift a six foot man off the ground. The, the, the um, main feathers are like, you know, this wide. And there's no white bird in the world with feathers that long. And if there were, they're not gonna let silly Hollywood people have them, right? So I had to fabricate them out of, um, they're um, molded out of plastic and painted and to look like feathers. But they're hard, you know, they're they're a little bit flexible, but they're, they're plastic, right? So, I mean, think about when you walk down some stairs with a, a long coat or a long skirt, it's gonna drag on the steps behind you, right? So I knew as he came down the steps, these wings are going to go smash on, on the steps. And Nora Ephron was the director, lovely woman. You know, she, she was amazing. Um, and I said, Nora, the, these wings are going to smash on the steps. She said, no, no, they're beautiful. They're beautiful. You did a great job. I said, I know they're beautiful, but I think they're going to, you know, smash on the steps as he's walking down. She goes, don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. So we're going to shoot the scene. And because it's the first scene with John wearing the wings, all the big wigs from L.A. have flown out to Texas. They're all sitting in their, you know, director's chairs with their names on it, whatever no, and, and they're all sitting there waiting and Nora shouts, Chin! and John walks down the steps, crash, 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 crash. <laughs> and the sound guy comes running in with his like headphones popping off and Nora's screaming, Stop! you know, cause she's not gonna take responsibility. And I'm like, yes, Nora. She's like, sit now. And I'm like, you know, and John's upset. I mean, he was the sweetest person, but now he looks, you know, like, and. I, I had to take the wings off him, which would take me like an hour to stick on him. And I literally had to cut through the middle, safety pin them up a few inches. I swear you can see the safety pins on the movie. And the and the first AD is screaming at me because hundreds of thousands of dollars are floating through the air while they're waiting for me to fix these things, you know. And the feathers are like now messed up. And I, you know, safety pin them up, <laughs> stick them back on his back and he should and they shoot it. You know, nobody would know if I didn't say anything, but I, I was like, I remember I was doing this, I was thinking, because I couldn't say anything to her because I can't embarrass her in front of, you know, all her bosses. And um, and I remember then thinking, that's it. This is ridiculous. I'm going to go to Safeways and bag groceries. This is, I don't want to joke like this anymore. Because <laughs> that only lasted a few minutes. And then um, John John and I became friends again. After that. So it all worked out and Nora, Nora was one of the sweetest people she gave me a beautiful gift at the end of the movie um a book and uh she because it was the first special effects movie she'd ever made so I kind of held her hand through a lot of it um but yeah there, that was one moment when I was like I hate this I'm out of here but I didn't I did it my best fixed it well, what a great story <laughs> I mean um I've actually met John Travolta as well I was an extra in a movie and um <laughs> my agent neglected to tell me that I was actually going to have to dance. I'm a dancer. I was a dancer in this movie. So I showed up. He said, you're just just an extra part, dressed like a, in a nightclub outfit, club clubbing. You're just going to be standing in line. 
So I had, I showed up with these ridiculous high heels, like I would if I were a 20 year old going to, you know, a club. Mm -hmm. And then I was told that I had to do a little tap dance with him. And I'm like, I can't tap. I can't even stand in these shoes, much less tap dance in them. So somebody lent me <laughs> their flat shoes and I'm trying to tap, you know, do a little tap and the shoe kind of slid off. And I just thought to myself, Calgon, take me away. Like, I don't, I'm, this is, I'm not even getting paid anything decent. Like as an extra, it's just whatever, a couple hundred bucks. But I remember thinking, I just want to be swallowed up. Can I just be beamed out? Just want to, you know, the embarrassment and just beamed up. But mm-hmm. John was amazing. He was funny. And actually, it was the worst movie ever made. I don't even think it got released. Thank you, God. But um, funny story. But again, mm-hmm. just linking this back to being a badass. When the chips are down, we find a way, right? Even if the way is to say, I'm sorry, give me 10 minutes or I need 30 minutes mm-hmm. to fix this or, you know, mm-hmm. to course correct. That's really the sign of being badass is when you can go, okay, time to step mm-hmm. up, right? right. Yeah. Nice story, yeah. nice story. Mm-hmm. So after Hollywood, you moved to where? Uh, to Israel. I, I'm here in Jerusalem right now. I've been here 14 years now. Yeah. Awesome. Mm-hmm. Talk to us about this. I mentioned it in your introduction that you had some tragic events happen. And as you were sitting, trying to sort of navigate your way through this, your body, your brain kind of took over and did and did some work on its own. If that's, I'm not sure if that's the right way to explain it, but can we talk about that a bit? Because that's pretty magnificent, no matter how you cut it. Yeah. Yeah. It was, um, it was in my early twenties and I was the first time Um, My skull was fractured in the nightclub. Some young man wanted to dance with me. I didn't know him. He was putting his hands where he shouldn't. I told him to get lost. And the last thing I remember is his hand on the back of my head and he smashed my head into a concrete pillar. I was unconscious only for a minute or something, but I lost my eyesight for a day and was in the emergency room and it was pretty scary. Um, But I was a student and it was kind of one of those things. It was the early eighties, you know, I was a punk rocker, you know, just one of the things that kind of happens. And and then three years later, I was mugged by three men who six o'clock in the evening, I was walking near my home. It was already dark because it was the winter. um, And they came from nowhere, slammed me on the ground, beat the living daylights out of me. I'm guessing they wanted money, which I didn't really have any in. So I I really thought I was gonna die. I, I can remember feeling the air running out of my lungs and thinking if I can't catch another breath, I'm going to die. Or if they have a knife, I'm going to die. And the weird thing was I had an out of body experience, which I guess is quite normal when you're going through something traumatic like that. And I could actually, I, I remember looking down on myself, seeing them beat me, it was quite um, weird. Um, and then I, this this was, I say in the early eighties, so PTSD wasn't even really recognized at that moment. It just, just going into the DSM that time, you know, for Vietnam. Vietnam soldiers and and people in combat so in Manchester nobody knew about it I basically my treatment was have a cup of tea go home and walk it off you know that that was really my treatment and so for the year after that I wasn't eating I wasn't sleeping um I I was you know just probably even doing what they call self-harm today I, I was punching the wall in absolute frustration and anger because I was stuck in reliving and reliving the story and and my periods actually stopped, um, which is quite common when someone's in, you know, high stress, because um, that's a luxury, you know, the body is very efficient. So it's, you know, using all the uh, finite resources it had 
to to keep me functioning. And so my doctor sent me to um, a psychiatrist at, at the um, Royal Infirmary. And I remember it took me two panic attacks just to get there. And because I was barely leaving the house. Um, and the psychiatrist wanted me to tell the story. So I told it the first time. And then she's like, tell me again. And I remember thinking, you stupid cow, didn't you hear it the first time? <laughs> and that was her treatment back then was tell the story. They called it flooding therapy. You, you tell yeah. it over and over and over and over again. And I remember thinking, but I do that at home. I need you to help me to not do that. Right? I need out of this and I can't find my way out. And um, I think I only went to two appointments because I thought I, I just wasn't worth it. You know, the panic of just leaving the house and getting there was not worth what she was offering. And that's the only time I ever went for professional help. Um, so when it came up a year anniversary, I decided Manchester was the problem. I should move to London. Um, I moved down to London, started working in the theatre. And then I was attacked again. A young boy threw a bicycle at my head. I was riding home from the theatre, broke my neck. And thank God, not the spinal cord, but the C2 and C3, the, the um, vertebrae just below your skull would crack through. Um, I think the spinal cord was bruised. And I, um, you know, I went down pretty hard and fast and quick that time because I now knew the world was a scary, dangerous place. You know, if you leave your house, you're going to get hurt. And, and if you said to me, oh, don't worry, I'll come to the park with you. We'll go to a painting class. We'll do something fun. I'm like, no, no, no. Because I had police reports and x-rays to prove the world's a scary place, yeah. right? So I knew that if I were to leave my house, I was going to get hurt. I'd be run over by a bus or something. Um, and so I finally reached out for help because I did train as a counselor when I was in college. So I think it took me a long time to work out why didn't I ask for help earlier? And I think as a coach or a counselor, you know, I, I was kind of thinking and all that stuff in Hollywood, which actually came afterwards. But it was like I had this um, way of thinking that I should be able to handle this. I should know. I know what I'm doing. I help other people. I should be able to get through this. And so thank God, finally, I reached out to some amazing women in a crisis center and they kind of scooped me up and helped me get back on my feet and really um, uh, helped me to use all my experiences to help other people and and the training I had they kind of built on that and turned me into a counselor and um, I'm very entirely grateful to those women and in fact I remember one of the first things I remember one of them saying to me she said are you ready to let go of your story so we're going to take a short break right now but I'll be back with my guest within 60 seconds ladies unlock your inner badass and transform your life with my monthly subscription workshop for just $47 a month, you'll have exclusive access to work closely with me, Mahara Wayman, as we dive deep into all things badass, from personal development to conquering your goals. Imagine waking up every day with confidence, purpose, and a smile that radiates your newfound strength. Take advantage of this badass opportunity and join us today at www.mindfulnesswithmahara.com and start your journey toward a happier, more confident you. Smile when no one is looking. You've earned it. And I thought, and, and what I heard her say was, it didn't hurt, it didn't happen and get over it, right? And in my head I was screaming, but it does hurt and it did happen and I can't get over it, you know? Um, but what she, what she said when I calmed down and I was able to hear what she was saying, it was like all that trauma had kind of become my identity. I was the girl who was mugged three times. You know, I could manipulate any conversation to get it around to me and my troubles. <laughs> and she taught me that I'm more than my story. I'm more than what happened to me. And she helped me kind of step out of that and come back to who I really am, which is 
you know, that strong place before all those thoughts and all that remembering and all those memories, which is passing through. So, um, yeah, it was, it, it kind of built me, I think it, it's funny, it, it's, I'm not what happened to me, but it, it was very instrumental in, in my path of where I am now, um, because it's really helped me to help other people. I think, first of all, thank you for sharing your story. And I think what's so powerful in your story is the recognition that it is a story and you got mm -hmm. to choose what that's the relationship that you had with that story. And, mm -hmm. you know, communication is so it, it only works if you actually hear what the person is saying. Right. And this is something that I'm working on mm -hmm. and have learned quite a bit in the, in recent years, especially with my training, which is just because I say it doesn't mean that they hear it. Just because mm -hmm. I say the sky is blue doesn't mean that my husband heard the sky is blue. Just because I say, oh, no, we're having mac and cheese for dinner. It doesn't mean that's what mm -hmm. the children hear or whatever. Mm -hmm. That's a hard mm -hmm. one. I, you know, I really applaud mm -hmm. you for being able to, in that moment, sit and give her a chance to really explain mm -hmm. because to i mean that that's mm -hmm. key right learning learning that is key right learning that we can change our mm -hmm. story or we can view our story differently or we can forgive ourselves for believing what we thought the story meant at that time yeah and i yeah. think forgiveness is a is a big component of that so you are now on a mission to make a difference and help other people that have gone through this what have you learned about yourself now or recently in this mission? Yeah, it it's funny for that story was so real to me for so long that if anybody challenged it, it was quite threatening. But what I see now is what happened to me is it's like I'm not in denial, but depending what state of mind I'm in how I remember it is completely different. Like I can tell you that story now because I'm in a fairly okay, good mood and I can see it with understanding and even compassion. Like the, the guys that hurt me, um, it wasn't personal. They didn't know me, um, but they were doing the best they could with the thinking they had in that moment. It's not an excuse, it's an explanation. Now, if I were to tell that story from a low mood, from 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 some kind of misery, I'm crying, you're crying, it's a disaster, right? So the, the, the facts or what actually happened, it's gone, doesn't exist anymore, but I'm not in denial about it. But how I, my perspective of it now is happening in this moment. So what I know now is that I can never be broken because if I'm in this moment where I have everything I need, that I am, um, I am bef the the real me. Isn't my body? Isn't my my career or you know the books I've written or any of that stuff? I'm I'm that place, that infinite loving energy before the formation of all these memories and thoughts. And once I started learning that thought is always moving, that it's a spiritual energy that's always moving through. That even if we have a funky thought or I remember something you know sad or bad from the past. It's just passing through. I don't have to engage with it. I don't have to even listen to it if it's really negative. Um, it's not me. It's just like a commentary, like a ticker tape of information going by. 
So the more I've kind of um, become an observer of that, I've actually found out who I really am because I used to think I was the story and, and the thoughts. You know, if I thought it, it must be true. No, <laughs> it's just nonsense. They say we have like, I don't know, 80 or 90,000 thoughts a day, probably more than that. Um, and most of it is nonsense. I've, I've realized now that most of my thinking is completely unreliable. You know, so it's not worth listening to. And that is one of the blessings of the work I do now is I've seen how I've actually lost interest in so much of my own thinking. And therefore, it's created space um, for fresh and new. And if I do get a funky thought, because everybody can, life still happens, you know, I can hold it much more lightly, you know, and it's not, not take it so seriously. And in that better place, that better state of mind, common sense kicks in and will tell me when to, you know, um, listen to an important thought, like do your taxes or eat or, you know, it's it's not, I don't come a blob on the sofa by doing it this way. It just becomes more um, fresh and new instead of being stuck in that old reliving and reliving stuff. What a powerful understanding. And I've said it, it comes up in my work quite a bit. And I remember saying it in a group setting. And I said, I said, guys, just because you think it doesn't mean it's true. And I remember one woman, her face just fell. And I thought she was going to, mm -hmm. I thought mm -hmm. she was going to get really upset. But what she said was, oh my God, I think my world just changed. Really? Just because I think it doesn't make it real or doesn't make it true? And I'm like, really? And it, it sparked this beautiful conversation. But to your point, Hannah, man, it takes discipline, I think, to sit quietly and let the thoughts go through. Because that's not what we're used to. At least it's not what I'm used to. I'm used to questioning everything and putting my, my actions up as a mirror against what society has asked of me. Am I measuring up? If I don't have this thought, then who am I, right? Because I've had a lifetime of, dis of seeing myself as this way. And if I take that away, then who am I? And to your point, we, I am, you are this beautiful spiritual being that has chosen to be in this body, right? I'm so much more than the shirt I'm wearing, the size I am, the house I live in. But it's, it can be a difficult lesson to learn. Sometimes it takes real pain and tragedy to get there. Sometimes it doesn't, but um, thank you for sharing your story about that and recognizing that it is okay to look at life through a different lens. And often mm -hmm. when we do, wow, everything is so much lighter. You know, I actually, you sit up taller, you're like, wow, I love the day. It's raining. It's all good. Like it, it really is. It can be just like that, you know, yep. an instant change. Beautiful. Mm -hmm. Can we talk about your books? Yeah, please. Tell me about mm -hmm. your books. Yeah, um, my books are novels, um, which is still kind of makes me smile because I hadn't written anything since high school. <laughs> so when I started writing about, gosh, about six years ago now, I think the first one came out. Um, you know, they, they say everybody has one book in them, you know, one novel in them. And so... For a while, people have been saying to me, oh, you should write a book about your Hollywood, you know, adventures, or you should write a book about your trauma, or you should write a book about, you know, living in different countries, you know, all the things you've done. And so I kind of thought, yeah, okay, I'll do that. But I am not a writer, right? This is another story. I'm not a writer. Um, I can't even spell. You know, in, in England, we take exams in each subject when you're 16. I, I took mine 
four times in English language and I, I, I got four D's. <laughs> so I had, I knew I had other talents like in my hands and being creative, but I never saw myself as an academic person. So when I wrote the first book, I didn't tell anyone. I didn't tell a single person. I just wrote it on my computer. And then I have a friend here who's a, a book developer. And so I, I told her, you know, I, I confided in her one day. I said, I've written something. I'd like you to look at it, but it's probably terrible. So please be nice to me when you tell me I'm wasting my time, right? I, I really begged her to be gentle with me. And I remember when I, I, I was, you know, she said, yeah, send it over. So it was on Google Docs or something. And so I remember looking at the computer and I'm going to press send, you know. And I tell you, it was one of the hardest things I've ever done. Much harder than all that Hollywood stuff because I'm about to, I don't know, I felt so vulnerable, mm. you know, because, you know, part of you wants to be imagining your, you know, your um, book tour, what you're going to wear on your book tour right? <laughs> and your prizes you're going to get. And the other one's thinking, is it? crap who am I kidding you know and so I just thought okay just press send and a couple of days later she said she said I read the first couple of chapters she said it's really good she said it needs work but I want to work on it with you and so she helped me do she guided me and helped me do some stuff and I put everything I had into that first book because I thought it was going to be the only book I write you know, I put all my juicy Hollywood stories in dancing with John Travolta, you know, like the all the trauma and, and the, you know, the getting up. The, but I wrote it with um, I used my stories, but for uh, another character, I called her Deborah. She's like an alter ego. So she does all the suffering and and, and the searching and the, and the happy ending. Um, and then I still had it on a manuscript. So I um, a lot of the like the, the psychological ideas that I share with my clients. Um, I wanted a, another friend to read it just to make sure I'd kind of got the, you know, the presentation of it correct. So I took it over to my friend's house. Um, uh, I think it was a Thursday night and I dropped it off for her to to read and give me some feedback before I published it. And Friday morning, I woke up with the idea for four or five more books. It was almost painful. It was like, boom, 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 boom. You know, it was, and I was like, oh, what am I going to do? And I just saw all these stories and it was it was like a fountain had been switched on and I think once I got past that idea I'm not a writer it just like the fountain was released and and off it went and so um I've written three of them now so the first one is called the myth of low self-esteem um being very English when I moved to California and all these people talking about their low self-esteem <laughs> You're kidding me? In a microphone in front of 300 people, you do not have low self-esteem, right? So I'm not saying there isn't such a thing as self-esteem. It goes up and down. We all have moods, It's but it's not who you are. You know, it's it's not a life sentence. It's not, you know, it's not a definition of who we are. Um, so that one's mostly about the recovery from trauma. Um, so as a result of all those injuries I had, I had chronic pain for 25 years. You know, I had a monthly chiropractic appointment for 25 years. Um, I was paralyzed several times. I was rushed to the hospital from several movie sets. You know, I could not move my body from my chest down. Sciatica pain. I also had um, IBS and psoriasis. I had a lot of physical issues over the years, which I now see was my body screaming at me to slow down. I was in so much stress and anxiety in my head, trying to not make a mistake, trying to be perfect in this weird job, um, you know, that my body was like tightening up and screaming at me 
But at the time when I would go to a doctor or a chiropractor and I tell them about my injuries, they go, oh, well, that's why your back hurts. That's why you have sciatica pain. And I'm not a doctor, so I would believe them. Um, and then after I kind of came across the ideas that I share with my clients, which is called the three principles, I did a course in London um, to be a practitioner, six month course. And at the end of it, all my pain gone away. 25 years of chronic pain has been gone for eight years now. The IBS has gone, chronic allergies have gone, skin problems have gone. <clears throat> and I suddenly thought, wonder if I could recreate this in other people. Wouldn't that be amazing? Because so many people are suffering you know, with chronic health issues. And this is you know, before COVID. Um, and I did, I did some case studies with five people who had various things like uh, knee pain, migraines, you know, IBS, and they all started to get better too. When their thinking slowed down like mine did, the body didn't need to scream at them anymore. So I took Deborah from the first book and she carries on and now becomes a pain coach. And so I kind of fictionalized all the clients I've worked with and put them in a fictional pain clinic and they're doing, you know, experimental research. You know, she gets to do some research in the book. And so the it's it's a fictional setting, but I'm I'm using actual clients I've worked with and my my own you know experience with pain pain uh, and becoming pain free. And so, um, and there's a romance at the end of it. And, you know, so it's, it's a, always have a happy ending. And then the third, that, that one's called Painless. And then the third one, which I um, published this year, is called Very Well. And uh, Deborah now becomes a minor character and I'm bringing other people in. And this one's set in Los Angeles. Um, this one is about a woman um, who's going into menopause and she has two daughters who are dealing with, one's dealing with PMDD, which is a very severe um, premenstrual um, hormonal uh, diagnosis. And um, the other daughter is dealing with postpartum depression. So I picked those characters so that they, you know, kind of covered most hormonal issues that women go through. So um, the mother, uh, she discovers these ideas and she meets Deborah and, and um, she, her menopause symptoms go away, which is what happened for me. I, I was going through a horrendous time with menopause when I came across these ideas. Brain fog so bad I couldn't find words in my head, you know, hot flushes every 20 minutes. It was hard to function. That's all gone too. So I wanted to write the book to help other women. And I've had many women read the book now who are having either the monthly hormonal difficulties or postpartum or menopause and their symptoms have gone away. And the book was uh, Amazon number one bestseller for a couple of days, which is, <laughs> yeah, I'll take that one. And I still have ideas for books four, five, and six um, stories. And I'm currently working on a textbook, a kind of textbook, because it's it's not fiction. I have collected over 45 stories of people around the world who have recovered from severe mental health diagnoses through these ideas from psychosis to OCD to ADHD to weird and wonderful phobias, you name it. And I've collected the stories together to show that we can never be broken, that human resilience is who we are. You don't have to work on it and get it. That resilience is there underneath all that stinky thinking. So whether someone is um, got a phobia or OCD or whatever they're doing, it's just, it really is a coping mechanism for the misunderstanding they're, they're up in their heads and they're not present in their lives. And the more people slow down and become present in their lives, they don't need the medications and the treatments and the psychiatrists anymore and they can live their best lives. And I've got all these stories to examples of that. 
So I just, well, great resource. And I've, um, I'm just having a first draft published now so I can see it because um, it's going to be quite a big book, I think, because it's so full of so much hope. Yeah. So exciting. Um, a couple things came to me while you were sharing that story. Number one, I understand when you said you were scared to the send button to your friend. My first book is called Essential Insights to Living Your Best Life. And it's basically, um, I can't even remember, eight or 10 short stories of my own life where I had a, a big lesson, a big opportunity to learn and grow. And when I, I sitting on my front lawn, looking at, it was all done. I'd done everything myself formatted it, you name it, everything. I had a, a writing mm -hmm. coach that helped me to edit it. But other than that, and it took me about two hours of staring at the publish button because I self-published on Amazon. And mm -hmm. all of these things, just like you said, were going through my mind like, wow, this is it. I can't take this back. Like it's out there. And I'm, it, there's very vulnerable things in, in this book. And I pressed, I finally pressed publish and I burst into tears. 56 years, 57 years old or 56 years old at the time, sobbing like an idiot, not like an idiot, but just sobbing like, like a human on my front lawn. Yeah. What have I done? Like, what the actual, mm -hmm. like, what have I done? And so I, I, I could picture that, right? I could totally picture that. And I think it's really, I think it's very smart of you to have created a character that goes through a development and goes through a journey because, you know, Deborah, your character is you. And as you grow and learn and experience, so does your character. So I am excited to find those books and read them. I want to get caught up. But I have yeah. to ask, the three principles, is that you came up with the three principles or is this based on something that you've done or read or experienced yourself? Could, you, could we talk about that? Um, yeah, thank you. Um, no, it's not It's not my um, creation. I, I would, would not take credit for it. Three principles um, is a new paradigm in psychology that's been around for about 30 years. A man called Sidney Banks um, had what you could call an enlightenment experience. He's, um, he was originally from Scotland and ended up in Canada, in Vancouver. And the, the story goes, it was the 70s. You know, everybody was searching, you know, for enlightenment and, you know, people were, you know, fleeing across the border from America to avoid the Vietnam draft. And so, you know, these hippies were hanging out and, you know, tuning out and all this kind of stuff. And he and his wife were having some difficulties. So his wife dragged him to a kind of self-realization weekend or something, you know, bash the pillows and all that stuff they used to do. And he was hating it. And he walked outside and there was another man who'd been dragged by his wife who was hating it. So these two guys are outside probably having a cigarette. And um, and they started talking and Sid, um, Sid started saying how he'd spent most of his life feeling very insecure. And this stranger said to him, you're not insecure, you just think you are. And boom, you know, Sid's mind goes like this and he had some kind of, you know, very powerful experience where he saw through the nature of thought. He saw that, like we were saying earlier, we are not our thinking. Uh, we are that place before thought forms into the ideas and memories and all, all the things we we have, you know, use for. And um, he he really changed. And apparently he said to his wife, you know, maybe we should pack our bags because we're not going to be living here in this little island just off Vancouver. We're going to be traveling the world and helping people. And he actually ended up writing six books. 
he um, apparently a, a hundred people a day were coming off the ferry just to hear him speak in those first few weeks. He ended up teaching at MIT. I mean, this guy had a, like an eighth grade education and, and MIT kept bringing him back to, to teach the physicists. Um, he had a, a there was a, a Sydney Banks Institute at Virginia University for a while. Um, and he it, it's now spread to hundreds of thousands of people around the world. Um, you know, it's a huge community now. There's a conference in London every year with, you know, thousands of people go. And as, and if you're thinking, how come I haven't heard of this? Like, that's what I thought when I first discovered, like, how come I never heard of this before? Because I got stuck in the self-help aisle at the bookstore like everybody else. And I'd been, I'd done the Enneagram and Course in Miracles. And I'd done so much and I thought I'd tried it all. And what made this different for me was that I I knew the problem was in my thinking. I knew the problem wasn't out there anymore. I'd done enough kind of personal work and transformational work to know that not, you know, the football team or the music or the boyfriend is not creating, you know, how I feel. I knew it, I knew it was my thinking about that. But I thought I had to do something about my thinking. And I had a, a, a kit of tools like expressive writing and meditation and, you know, I was in Pilates and yoga. I lived in Southern California. I had a lot of tools, you know, to, to share with people. And it was exhausting. It was like, I was really good at thought hygiene because I had been in some very dark places and I knew what negative thinking can do to you and your life. And I didn't want to go back there. So I was armored with all these weapons to, you know, keep that bad thought away, keep that bad thought away, be positive, you know, affirmations. And when I first heard Sydney Banks speak, um, there's lots of videos of him talking on, on YouTube. Um, and basically he was saying is thought is always moving. It's a spiritual energy. So you don't actually have to do anything because every funky thought you've ever had, every bright idea you've ever had, every broken heart has moved on and it's gonna move anyway, no matter what you do, like clouds. You could say, oh, I want those white clouds there and those gray clouds there, they're gonna move anyway, right? And I just thought, oh, thank God. Because I also think that's why my body was in so much pain because it was exhausting trying to keep all these negative thoughts away as if they were gonna hurt or harm me. And now I know that thought is neutral. There is no good or bad thought until I have a reaction to it. So once I know that, it's so freeing that I don't have to do anything about my thinking. So my, my favorite prop, I, I just picked it up, is a snow globe, right? So all that um, busy work I was doing, trying to kick like the, the meditation and the writing and the, you know, all that stuff, it was like shaking up the snow globe. But what do you have to do to make the snow globe stop? nothing <laughs> right <laughs> you stop shaking it right well, and that's and 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 like my body had wisdom to heal itself you know all those injuries I had all those broken bones and that the wisdom my body healed, healed itself and when I was writing my second book I said this big insight I thought whatever creative wisdom loving intelligence there is that runs the universe whatever you want to call that if it created my body with a um, a healing system why wouldn't it have created my mind with a healing system it did. And if we just have the patience to slow down, and, and I don't think you have to, I, I don't meditate. I used to, before I, I don't even have to meditate anymore. Just the understanding and the insight that we are healthy, we have innate health, we have innate resilience, we cannot be broken. I can get caught up in some stinky thinking sometimes, but it's just, it's an illusion. Like my work in Hollywood was all about, you know, illusions. 
my mind has a better special effects department than anything you know me or Steven Spielberg could come up with and so when I know it's just an illusion and it's just passing through I don't have to take it seriously I don't have to get upset about it and so I rarely get into a low mood anymore and if I do I know it's going to pass and that has been such freedom and I think that's why my pain went away I think that's why I can talk about my trauma and it doesn't bother me anymore and that's what I've been sharing with clients for about you know eight Eight, eight years now I think and and that's what the books are about the books are all pointing to this idea this 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 truth that um that we're not broken and we don't need fixing and and with insight and understanding you can be free of whatever has happened in the past all right folks you heard it here I'm sure it may not be the first time you heard her speak but oh my god so much wisdom and power in in those statements and by the way I think that I see a book title has got to be that I'm not broken or you can't break me because that's where, <laughs> like, I keep coming back to it. Going, oh, that's a great title. Mm -hmm. Wow. Thank you so much. Um, this has been such a fascinating conversation and I want to just honor all of this, all of the, the stories and the wisdom that you've brought to the show today, folks, be sure to check the show notes. I will drop everything that I can, um, including links to those amazing books. For you because uh, this is just such a great way to look at life and, and, and a way to um a way to forgive ourselves for buying the bullshit right buying into the bullshit which is what so many of us do thank you again for joining me on the show today those of you i know that there's lots of wisdom in here and i can't wait to hear what resonated with you the most so please do drop me a dm or drop some comments um about what resonated with you the most and if you say um you know, that John Travolta once had wings and you missed that movie, Michael, because I actually saw it. My name is Mahara Wayman. This has been The Art of Badassery. And remember, you are worthy of happiness and freedom and a healthy body. So don't buy into the bullshit that anything else is the truth because that is, that is the truth. Have an amazing week, everyone. I will see you next week on The Art of Badassery and Hannah. Have an amazing day. Thanks for joining me. Thank you for tuning in to The Art of Badassery. I hope you enjoyed today's episode and gained valuable insights to help unleash your inner badass. If you found this podcast helpful, please leave a rating or review on your favorite platform. Your feedback not only helps me improve the show, but it also helps others like yourself discover the podcast. Until next time, Keep embracing your authenticity and living life on your terms. Here's to you.